0: John chapter number 5 this morning. I want to read nine verses to you. And I want to talk a little bit about this man by the pool of Bethesda. The Bible says in verse 1, After this there was a feast of the Jews, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. The name Bethesda means house of mercy. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. While I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately, boy, I like an immediate salvation, don't you? <laughs> I don't like this progressional salvation lie that's straight out of hell. I like an immediate kind of salvation. That's what the Bible teaches is an immediate kind of salvation. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. I want to read to you again in verse number 6. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, He saith unto him, now notice this question, wilt thou be made whole? Let's pray together this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I covet your help this morning. I ask, Lord, for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, Lord, not just indwelling in believers, but outpouring in our midst. Father, that you would do in our midst what only you can do. Lord, this morning, I'm not asking you to help me do what needs to be done. I'm asking you, Lord, to help me to get out of the way and allow you to do what needs to be done this morning. Father, give me the power and unction of the Holy Spirit. and God, help me to be a yielded vessel for your glory and for your honor. If there's one amongst us that's lost and undone this morning, Lord, alien from Christ, helpless and hopeless in this world, I pray that you'd show them, Lord, the blessed truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Show them Calvary, Lord, in the love of God and through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Lord, make them aware of their sinful state that they might come to the Savior this morning. Lord, I pray there's probably some in this mist, Lord, that are discouraged, and I pray that You'd encourage them this morning. Teach us what You've done for us through Your great salvation. and We'll be sure to thank You for it. Lord, we love You this morning because You first loved us. And we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter number 5 is one of the most fascinating chapters, I believe, in all of the Word of God. It's a fairly large chapter and it spans a multitude of thoughts and ideas. And in fact, out of the book of John, John chapter 5 has some unique qualities. The book of John out of the four Gospels is a unique Gospel. It is not what we would call a synoptic Gospel. The other three Gospels present to us the same story from different viewpoints. All of it true, by the way. None of it mingled with falsehood or untruth, but different angles and different viewpoints from different men. And all of it by the Holy Ghost. But the book of John is unique in the in the four Gospels in that it does not present to us many of the same stories that Matthew, Mark, and Luke do, but it presents to us some different stories. It presents to us Christ as the Son of God. It's God in the flesh, in the Word, made flesh dwelling amongst us. In the New Testament, certainly, uh, the Gospels are the centerpiece of narrative. I believe that while the Old Testament is just as valid as the New Testament, I believe that the New Testament has a particular application for us this morning. You say, preacher, what are you getting at? I'm saying we're on holy ground this morning. I'm saying we're looking at some very important thoughts this morning. And in John chapter number 5, we're told in verse number 1 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now isn't it a blessed thought that when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, it was that He might go down to the pool? He did not go to intermingle with the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He did not go that He might be seen and noticed. He did not go so that men might proclaim His goodness and greatness. Oh, there's coming a day when the goodness and greatness of Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, will be proclaimed in that holy city. It is not today, but there's coming a day when the King is going to return. But in this passage, He's not going up for that purpose. But he goes up to Jerusalem for the express purpose of seeing this man lying by the pool of Bethesda. It's a fascinating narrative. And uh, if you're looking for a very in-depth and revealing exposition of verse number 4, you're not going to get it from me. Amen? <laughs> the Bible says, "...for an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water." Whosoever then first after the troubling of the waters stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. You say, Preacher, how did that happen? Well, I don't know how it happened except to know that an angel descended from heaven and troubled the waters. I can't explain to you why that is. I don't know when it started. I don't know when it stopped. But I believe the Bible when it tells me that that happened. The Bible says that at this pool of Bethesda, this angel would come down and stir the water. You say, what does it mean, preacher? Well, this isn't my message. But I kind of think it's a picture of the Old Testament dispensation and the troubling of the water of the Word of God and the revelation of the truth of God to the minds of certain folk. But now there's a new and brighter and greater way and that which had been uh, hidden is now revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, neighbor, we're not waiting by a pool. Now we're not just waiting for some kind of divine manifestation, but the Almighty Son of God has been manifested for you and I, and we're not having to wait for the water to be stirred. The Son of God is here to heal in our lives. I believe there's some beautiful truths here, but I'm not going to give you an exposition of verse 4, I just believe it this morning. I want to give you a few thoughts, though, and I want them to center around this man and his salvation experience. This is part of a broader narrative that deals with the revelation of the Son of God uh, to various people in chapter number 5. But I just want to take a moment and notice the condition of this man. The Bible tells us in verse number 3, in these, meaning in this pool, uh, in these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And it tells us in verse number five, and a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And just suffice it to say that this was a place that was surrounded by sick folks. It was a place surrounded by people that were diseased, that were broken. The Bible uses the term impotent, meaning they were powerless. They were helpless, as it were. Now the Bible's about to shift focus onto this man in particular, but can I say that uh, if we take a moment, a moment and notice the infirmities that are spoken of here, we get a pretty good picture of the world that we live in. Can I tell you that we live in a sin-sick world this morning? The Bible teaches that sin is the cause of all curse, of all calamity, of all sickness in this world. Not particular or personal sin, but sin in a broad sense. You say, preacher, what do you mean? I mean, I'm not saying if you're sick it's because you have sin in your life. I'm saying the reason there's sickness in this world is because the curse of sin is upon this world. The Bible teaches us that God created this world and it was a perfect place. It had no uh, sickness, it had no calamity, it had no chaos, it had no no uh, wickedness and no sin within it. But through the fall of Adam, the Bible teaches that sin passed upon all men and death passed upon all men. And sickness is a reality in this day that we live in. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have been sick at some time in your life? Anybody? Oh, a couple of you. I've been sick myself a time or two. You say sick in the head, amen. <laughs> but, and that probably too. But I mean, I, I have felt the effects of this sin-sick world in my life before. But you know, I believe it's a deeper sickness. I believe there's a spiritual sickness in this world. Do you know that the Bible tells us that it teaches us that we are helpless and hopeless without Jesus Christ? You and I are born into this world just as these impotent folk that sat beside this poolside with all manner. It may express itself in different ways amongst different folks, but everybody born in this world is born sin-sick. Every single one of them. It may manifest itself in hypocrisy, but everybody's born sin-sick. It may manifest itself uh, through lewd and, and, and lascivious activity, but everybody's born sin-sick in this world. Every one of us. The Bible uses these terminologies. The Bible says there was some there that was blind. That pictures is for us the inability of the sinner to see the truth of God's Word without the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit of God in His life. The Bible says that uh, those that are lost, their minds have been blinded from the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll tell you a sinner's problem. A sinner's problem is they're blind. They're blind. Describe a sunset to a blind man. You'll get about as far as if you try to describe sin to a sinner. They can't understand it. Oh, they know morality, but they do not know spirituality. They understand that things may go contrary to the consensus of society and social expectation, but a sinner cannot understand that when he does something, it offends a holy God. Why do you think it is that as society is changing, morality is changing? Have you noticed that? Go into any major city and stand on a street corner and preach that sodomy is a sin. Sodomy, it's not an alternate lifestyle. It's, it's not love. You hear me this morning? It's not love. It's a sickness. It's a sin sickness. Amen. It's not a physical sickness. They're not born that way any more than uh, than the, uh, a drunkard is born a drunkard. They're born sinners. They're born sinners. But you stand on a street corner and they're liable to string you up today in the state that we live in. The fact is, society is changing, so morality is changing. And a sinner can understand the concept of morality because that's defined by the boundaries of society. But he cannot understand spirituality. He cannot understand righteousness and iniquity and wickedness. He cannot understand these things. You say, preacher, why? Because he's blind. He doesn't know. He can't see those things. You say, what do we do about that, preacher? Well, the Holy Spirit of God has to make him aware of these things. You say, how does the Holy Spirit of God do that? Does He do that by just opening heaven and and pouring down upon it? No, not necessarily. There's been people that's happened that way too. But the Bible says that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit. And it's through the Word of God that a man is made aware of his need of Christ's salvation. The Spirit of God makes it real in his heart and in his life and in his mind. Until then he's blind. The Bible uses the term halt. What does halt mean? Well, we know what it means as a verb. We just don't know what it means as an adjective. But if you tell someone to halt, what you're saying is stop moving. In other words, we might say that these halt people were people that were unable to move in some fashion. They were unable to walk. They were unable to progress. They were paralyzed. You know that the sinner, try as he may, has no capacity to walk with God. None. He has no, he may follow the rules, but he has no capacity to walk with God. He has no ability to move from his present situation. Do you hear me this morning? A sinner, you say, preacher, I'm saved. What does this have to do with me? Yeah, but some of you have loved ones that are lost and you're wondering what's going on in their life and you're wondering why they react the way they do. I'll tell you why they do. If they're lost, it's because they don't have the ability to take a step towards God. You may pray that they do, but until they get saved, they cannot walk with God. They must be saved before they can walk with God. The Bible uses the term withered. Withered. Now there's uh, many different connotations for that. But certainly it means someone whose limbs, either through lack of use or through some physical malady, have, have shrunk to the point that they are useless. They have no capacity to work. They cannot do anything. And do you know that the lost sinner can't do anything for God? He, he may give to charity, and, and, and that charity may help people, but he's not doing anything for God. You know God measures motives? You know that this morning? God measures motives and intentions. Now, intentions aren't the only thing it's about. You can have in good intentions. There's a lot of people with good intentions going to wind up in hell. But I'm saying God measures motives. Just because a man may give away millions of dollars to a charity to help people, that's all good and well, but that doesn't square him with Almighty God. Nothing he does can, can do anything to make him right with God. He is sin-sickened until this sickness is dealt with. He can never have a relationship with God. We see his infirmity. But I want you to notice their inquiry. The Bible says that they sat there waiting. They were waiting. wonder why they were there. Well, let's use some, some simple logic. They were there because when the angel came down and stirred the water, that was their only hope. And they were looking for hope. In a hopeless situation. Can I tell you something this morning? I've heard this a lot. And I'll be honest. It's something I've had to think about. Because, you know, it helps us in life if we think. (laughs) And I've tried to think about this and measure it and determine if it's truth. And I hear this phrase a lot. Gospel hardened. And I've thought about that phrase a lot. You know, the more I think about that, Brother Ralph, the less sense that makes to me. Uh, let, let's use something different. Can a man be so alive that he's dead? Can a man be so rich that he's poor? Uh, can a man be so well that he's sick? Then why would we believe that the gospel, which softens the heart and makes alive the sinner, that a man could have so much gospel that he be hardened? That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think that this world is looking for the answer. They may be doing it in their own way, but they're looking for the answer. And I kind of think sometimes us, us good Bible-toting, church-going Christians have bought this bill of sale from the devil that people are gospel-hardened, so there's no use in giving them the truth. There's no use in trying to reach them, because we live in the Bible Belt, neighbor. We live in the buckle of the Bible Belt, and there's no way you're going to reach them because they're gospel-hardened. You know, the more I think about that, the more that just sounds like a lie straight out of hell, doesn't it to you? I kind of believe that's not the situation we're living in. I kind of believe a man cannot have so much of the gospel that he rejects it. I believe he rejects it because he doesn't want the gospel. But they're looking. They're looking. You can look around you and see that this world is looking. Looking for an answer. Looking for a truth. Oh my, we live in a day when truth is taught as a relative matter. How ludicrous of a thought is that? Truth is a relative matter. Truth is the thing in this world that's not relative. Truth is the very foundation. Truth is that which is unshakable and unmovable. That which though uh, scoffers uh, may rail against it, uh, though theologians may try to hammer away at it, truth will stand. The Bible says nothing can be done against the truth. Nothing can. And there's people in this world, they're looking for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't know where to find it. Say, preacher, what are you driving at? I'm saying there's pools all around us. And there's sick folks sitting around them and they're looking for an answer. They think they're finding it in religion, but they're not. You know what religion does? Listen carefully. Religion keeps a man waiting by the pool till he dies of his sickness. That's what religion does. Religion gives a man hope, but does not give him forgiveness. Religion gives a man something to aim for without ever revealing that it's already been achieved. Religion says, do this, do this, do this, do this. Christ said, it is finished, it is done. That's what salvation, that's the difference. They're trying to find it in religion. They're trying to find it in debauchery. Trying to fill that hole in their life with something that will satisfy. I'm saying they're waiting by the pool. We see another matter. Look with me again in the text. I want you to notice we see the uh, infirmity of this man. We see the the inquiry of these folks. Look at verse number 7. The Bible says the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. I want to say a word about this man's integrity. And when I use the word integrity, that can be used in a very good way, in a good connotation. Everybody ought to be people of integrity. But I mean an integrity in a worldly sense. The same way that we might speak of pride in a righteous sense, and then we might speak of pride in a wicked sense. I want to speak for a moment about integrity in a wicked sense. It's interesting. The Lord looks at this man and says, "Wilt thou be made whole? He asks him a question of his will. Listen to how the man answers. He does not say yes. He does not say no. But instead of answering the question, he makes this statement, Sir, I have no man. You know what he was saying? He said, I don't have anybody around me that I can rely on. Then he goes further and he says, now notice this, but while I am coming. You know what he was saying? Christ looked at him and said, would you be made whole? You know what he said? He said, I'm trying. If you ask people today, are you saved? They'll say yes. And if you ask them today, why do you believe that you're saved? They'll give you a multitude of answers. And sometimes they'll say, I've been baptized. And sometimes they'll say, I, I give to charities. And sometimes they'll say, I volunteer. But you could boil it down to one simple phrase, Brother Ralph. One simple thought that every man, woman, and child, it seems that is lost in this world, will give you when you ask them the reason they believe that heaven is their home. You could boil it down to this phrase, I'm trying. I'm trying. Can I say trying is not the way to heaven? This man says, and think of it, neighbor, think of it. This man in his sickness and in his malady. This man that was helpless and hopeless. This man with his broken body and broken spirit. There he sits. And when I asked if he would be made whole, the simple truth is laid. And listen to me this morning. Some of you have loved ones and you've laid the simple truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ before them. And you know what they've said to you? They've said, I'm trying. Some of you have coworkers that you've laid the simple truth, the question point blank, will thou be made whole? Will you be saved? Will you accept Christ's free salvation, free full pardon offered to any and all? It's a whosoever kind of gospel neighbor. And you've offered that and you've said, would you be saved? And they say, I'm trying. I'm trying. You know, it's the problem that integrity's getting in the way. That pride. Is getting in the way. And it's intrinsic to the human heart to achieve things of its own accord. You know what? The first sin that was ever committed, the Bible teaches this, Satan desired the throne of God in heaven. And you know what he said? He said, I will. I will. Let me tell you what this thing boils down to. Listen carefully this morning. This thing's a matter of the will this morning. Not how much will you've got. But how much will you've got left? What did Christ ask him? Notice the condition of the sinner. But notice the compassion of the Savior. He says, Wilt thou be made whole? Until Listen carefully. Until your will is broken, you'll never be saved. Can I say it any plainer than that? You know when the prodigal came home? He said, I will arise. And go to my Father's house. Before that moment, His will had been to stay in the pigsty. And it just baffles the mind sometimes. I know it's got to baffle you. It baffles me. I, I, I look around and I see sinners in the depths of their iniquity. Sin has lost its shimmer and its shine. Sin has lost its sweetest song and its most kind words. And there it's bearing its ugly teeth and its wicked head. And what do they say? They say, I'm staying in my sin. Why? 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 Because it's not about the sin. It's about the will. That's what they're clinging to. Let me tell you, the most wicked notion in the world is independence when it relates to the God of heaven. I'll do things my way, my time, my terms. He asks him, Wilt thou be made whole? But I like this. Aren't you thankful? Oh my, let me tell you something. Brother Ralph, I don't know how these liberal preachers get up and preach and and, and don't believe in the deity of Christ and Christ's salvation. I don't know how you could do that. I, I don't know how a man could get up and preach people straight into a devil's hell and never give them a hope. Let me just put it simply. If it wasn't for Christ's intervention in this passage, I couldn't imagine preaching it. It's not just the condition that must be noticed, but the compassion of the Savior. And there's three things I want you to notice that Christ did for Him, that Christ has done for us. Look with me in verse number (laughs) 6. I like this. Sometimes I don't even know how to preach. You know that? Most of the time I don't even know how to preach. I just have to read it and... And see what happens. It says when Jesus... Oh, listen to these sweet words. When Jesus saw Him lie. Can I say the first step of compassion? Is Jesus saw Him. That may not mean a lot to you. But stop and think about this. The God of heaven. The Word made flesh. The Creator... Of this world. There was a pool, no telling how many people gathered around it. There was a city, no matter, uh, no telling how many people were crowded into it. There was a nation, no telling how many multitudes. There was a region, no matter, uh, no telling how many uh, different nations within it. And there's a big vast world. But within all of the cosmos of this universe, the God of heaven, the Word made flesh, He saw this man. He noticed him. He took notice of this man and his infirmity. You say, preacher, I don't get what you're so excited about. I'm excited because I see this man that for 38 years had lain there in a sick bed, hopeless and helpless, clinging to his own will. And I see Toby Weber laying there in that sick bed that could have laid there for another uh, for another 28 years after when he had got saved. He could have laid there. He could have died and went to hell in the pool of religion. But the Savior saw me. He saw me. He saw a 10-year-old boy. What does it matter in this world, just a little 10-year-old boy? But it matters to the heart of God. What does it matter? Hey, what what does a grown man matter? Just one man, Bill. What does it matter? What does an 8-year-old boy or 10-year-old boy matter? What does it matter? But to the heart of God, it meant something. To the heart of God, it gained his attention. And the very heartbeat of God beat for this poor, wicked, loyal, sin-sick man as he laid in his sickbed and the Savior saw him there. Notice he not only saw him, but I like this. You know the Bible's perfect? If you don't believe the Bible's perfect, you're gonna have a hard time around here. <laughs> he saw him lie. He didn't see him do anything. I want you to notice What the the heart of God saw was not His attempts. It was not His attempts at gaining His own healing. That's not what God saw. God saw Him in His helplessness. God didn't see him trying to make his way and crawl and drag that broken body down to the pool of Bethesda. That's not what gained the attention of God. But the hopelessness of this man and his infirmity, that gained the attention of God. Let me tell you something, God's not interested in saving the righteous because they can't be saved. He's interested in sinners this morning. He's interested in people that know their condition this morning. He's interested in people that are hopeless and helpless this morning. You say, I've got a I've got a son, or I've got a daughter, I've got a grandchild, and I just feel like they're hopeless. I got good news for you, neighbor. That's who God's looking for this morning. You say, Well, I've got a good kid and they're good and they try and they well, no, they've never been saved, but they go to church. Hey, I got bad news for you, neighbor, until they get hopeless, they won't get any help. What God's looking for is the hopeless sinner this morning. God's looking for the one that has come to the end of his, uh, of his rope and has met the end of His own ability. God's looking for people at their extremity this morning. When he saw him, he saw him lie there. When he tried to drag that crippled body down to the pool of Bethesda, God wasn't interested in that. But when he saw him lying there hopeless and helpless, the Savior said, "I can help him. I can help him." And you may have one, oh my, you may have a loved one that you think is beyond hope. but oh neighbor, I've got news for you that they're not beyond hope. When they get to the place that they see their hopelessness, that's when hope is found. Jesus saw him and I like this, and he knew that he had been in that case for a long time. The Savior saw him, but the Savior knew him. The Savior understood. That man, can I say something to you today? You may not understand that lost love. Or you may be here today lost without Christ. And you may say, nobody understands me. Can I say that may be true? But can I say that Jesus Christ, He knows you. He knows. You say, He wouldn't save me. He doesn't know me. Oh, He knows you. (laughs) He knows you and He bought you lock, stock and barrel. He knows what you've done. What could we fear from a Savior that knows us? Or oh, we might fear a Savior that does not know us. Lest upon closer inspection He should turn His righteous nose, and which is His God-given right to do so and walk away from the responsibility and duty of saving our souls. But what have we to fear from a Savior that knows us and loves us? What have we to fear from the God of heaven that formed us, that knows us? He knew this man. He knew him. He knew the numbers of the hairs on his head. He knew what his malady was. He knew what the pro He knew what he needed. I want you to notice the third thing. It seems small, don't it? But isn't it a blessed thought? Jesus saith unto him. Jesus saw him lying there in his sin. Jesus knew him in the situation he had been to. But Jesus spoke unto this man. Aren't you glad that our knowledge of God is not just purely academic? But it's experiential. Aren't you glad that we don't just know the voice of God? We get to hear the voice of God. And listen, until a sinner say, Preacher, do you mean audibly? No, I don't mean, I don't mean audibly. We got something better than that. Now, what Peter said? Peter said, Well, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made unto you the power and coming of our Lord, but we're eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter says, We are with him in the mount. He said, we heard the voices that were speaking. But you know what Peter said? We have also a more sure word of prophecy. I don't need a transfiguration experience. I've got the Word of God. And that's greater and better. And that's when the sinner comes to know God, when he hears through the the convicting power of the Holy Spirit of God, when he hears His name called. Not when he hears a bunch of names called, when he hears His name. Do you remember that day? Remember that day when the Lord said, Ralph, Ralph. Remember that day when he said Charlie? Remember that day when he said Bill? Remember that day when he said Fred? Remember that day when he said Ron? Remember that day when he said Daniel? You remember that day? You remember that day when when the Spirit of God, He wasn't talking, He may have been talking to somebody else as well, but you didn't care. He was talking to you. He saith unto Him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. Immediately, immediately. I want to show you a final thing and we'll close. We see the condition of this man. We see his infirmity. We see the inquiry of the people. We see the integrity that was keeping him from the Savior. We see the compassion of the Savior. That Jesus saw him in his sin. That Jesus knew him in his malady. That Jesus spoke to him in his lost condition. But I want you to see also the conversion of this man. The first thing we see is his confidence. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing By the word of God. Christ spoke to this man and said, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately he arose. You know what he had to do? He had to believe that what God said he would do, he would do when he rose. No telling how long that man, at least 38 years, I'm sure, had spent without trying to apply strength to those legs. It was useless. What point was there? What hope could there be? This man's sick. Except someone drag him down to that pool. He's not going to be healed. So why even bother? Legs that had long slumbered. No sense in applying strength to them. No sense in taking a step that you know you can't take. But when God bid him come, he put his faith in the Lord and he arose. It was a step of faith. He believed God. Listen to me. You know what he was believing? Oh, Listen carefully to this. He was not believing that he had the capacity to walk. He was believing that God had truly healed him when he said he would. You know what faith is? Faith is not believing that by God's help we can be saved. Faith is believing that because God has promised that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if I call on Him, I'm not going to help Him save me. He's going to save me. That's what faith is. What this man was doing, he was not saying, well, maybe i built up strength. He was saying, God spoke that I would have strength. And I believe that what He spoke is going to come true. He put his faith. We see His confidence. We see His consecration. You know what he did he took up his bed that's significant of the leaving of the old life you know why he took up his bed he wasn't gonna need it anymore we're gonna need it he didn't need it laying there anymore he wasn't getting back in it let me tell you what a lot of a lot of saved people have done a lot of saved people have risen up in faith and accepted christ as their savior and then either because no one discipled them or because they chose to do it of their own accord, they've laid back down in that same bed of sin. And they've laid there for years and years. Hey, listen, neighbor, when was the last time you grew in your walk with God? When was, when was the last time your prayer time increased? When was the last time you really read the Word of God and gained things from it? Could it be that you've laid back down in that same bed? Oh, blame it on everybody, I know. Blame it on, on the family, blame it on the church, blame it on the preacher, blame it on the hypocrites, blame it on, on the people that have stabbed you in the back. Go ahead and blame them, but you'll stay in that bed just the same. No, we've got to make the decision to get up out of that bed. We've got to make the decision to put it away. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. We see His consecration, but finally we see His commandment. Rise, take up thy bed. And it didn't stop there. He said, walk. Walk. The command given to the new believer. And there's a lot of facets to this. Walking with God uh, encompasses a lot of various things. But very simply, it's this. Once we are to be saved... Hey, listen. The lowest that your Christian walk, as far as its progression. The most immature that your spiritual walk has ever been should have been the moment you stepped up from the cross of Calvary. It should be. You say, preacher, are you saying you've never taken any steps back? No, I'm not saying that. I've had my times. I've found my place back on that bed before. I've stood there stagnant before. There's been times in my life. But I'm saying the design of God is that we walk in the good works that He's foreordained for us. We've got to walk. You're not going to be happy unless you're walking with God. You know, that that seems to be, in my short time of pastoring, I've not pastored long. I've not not pastored long. You know, I'm 62 this year, Ron. But I've not pastored very long. You know, it's it's mixed. People that know me think I'm still 17. People that don't know me think I am 62. But uh, in my short time of pastoring, the thing that seems to be the most difficult for people to grasp Is that they won't be happy until they're living for God. People say, I just need a break from all this. No, you don't need a break. You don't need a break. You need to go on with God. That's what's going to keep you happy. You say, but it's tough, preacher. Yeah, it's tough. Try living in sin, it's a lot tougher. You say, well, I just need a break from all this church stuff. It's just, it's getting me down. No, sin gets you down. The church builds you up. We're built up in our most holy faith. That's what the Word of God says. No, you don't need a break from the Christian wall. You need a break from that sin, and you need to learn to walk with God. That's what will keep you happy. You know how sneaky the devil is? Oh, I hate the devil. Oh, I hate the devil. My goodness, I hate the devil. You know how sneaky he is? He'll get someone to get sin in their life. Listen carefully. And then when they get sin in their life and they're unhappy, He'll sneak along beside them and you know what He'll say? He'll say, you know, it's your church family that makes you unhappy. You know, it's your spouse that's making you unhappy. You know, it's your family that's making you unhappy wonder why it is that there's been time and time again that people, I'm talking about people in the ministry, I'm talking about people that were, were good Christians seemingly, have walked out on their family and walked out on God and walked out on the walk of Christ. What is that? they got a little bit of sin in. And the devil came along and said, the reason you're not satisfied is because of all this in your life. You just need a change. No, the problem was the sin in their life. They got the sin out of their life. they would have found restoration and rejuvenation in, in the circumstances that God had put them in. But because they got sin in their life and believed the lie of the devil, then you know what they do? They tear their life all to pieces trying to fix it. And then you know what happens? about the time they tear that last piece apart, the devil comes along and he says, "You know I fooled you. You know I fooled you." And he comes along and he says, you know it wasn't all those things. It was this fierce and ugly sin in your life. By then you've made such a wreck of things. You may put it back together, but it will have scars. The fact of the matter is the devil, he's sly and he's cunning. And we're, we're not to be ignorant of his devices. What we need is not a new change. What we need is not a new way. We need to walk in the old paths where it is the good way. That's what we need. We don't need this new way. We need the old way. And the truth of the matter, old Vance Havner, you say, what people need is not a new way. They need to learn the old way in in, in such a way that it seems like the new way too. This morning, I I wonder, if you're here and lost without Christ, do you see yourself beside that pool? Maybe it's a pool of religion, but you'll lie there in your sin just the same. Maybe it's a pool of iniquity. You're trying to find something to satisfy your life and it'll never satisfy. But whatever it is, as you lie there Can I tell you, there's a Savior that sees you, that knows you, that loves you, that will speak your name. And He wants to do that this morning. Or maybe you're here today, and you know you're saved. But you know you've not been walking with God as is needed. Can I encourage you today in saying this? The Lord's right where you left Him. He's right where you left Him. Uh, James said, draw an eye unto God, and He'll draw an eye unto you. And you can get your life where it needs to be this morning. This morning can be a new beginning. Not a new way, but a new beginning of the old way. And of what God's done in your life. He's willing, ready, and able. Oh my, aren't you thankful God is able this morning.